lot's been said already, and I want to get off the platform, but I do want to take a moment just to introduce our speaker, uh, Dr. Brian Chappell. He uh, was uh, uh, originally the president of Covenant Theological Seminary, and then um, they, they sort of, I think, I don't know, moved him to a position of chancellor so he could do more ministry outside of the seminary, but also be a, an advocate for the seminary. Of course, he's um, a well-known uh, professor uh, of homiletics, practical theology there, uh, and authored a number of books. Um, and uh, now he's just recently uh, taken a, a pastorate at uh, uh, Grace Presbyterian Church in Peoria, Illinois. And so be in prayer for him. He's, he's been there just a, just a few months now and, and the challenges of new ministry. So um, please uh, help me in warmly welcoming Dr. Brian Chappell. Thank you all for a, a warm welcome and for Jeff saying more kindly than any time I've ever heard it that I was picked from the bottom of the list, <laughs> actually after you had exhausted the list, and that was so well said. And, and makes the, uh, the title of my message all the more apt, Use for the Useless. I mean, hardly ever has it been set up so well. So, I'm going to ask that you look in your Bibles as I uh, think through how to um, encourage you to look at Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. I mean, to be at a, a fellowship in the gospel meeting with men who want to walk more closely with the Lord, who want to be encouraged in the gospel, I mean, that is a privilege. And Jeff's exactly right. I mean, I so love being able to be with men who want to be leaders in their communities and churches and homes for the sake of the gospel. I mean, this is just precisely what I love doing, and, and I respect you so much for wanting to be here for such a conference. If, if we weren't in a, a beautiful facility like this, um, imagine the ancient days when this passage was written. If we had uh, a group of men, old and young, around a Hebrew campfire, what would we do to encourage one another to walk with the Lord? You know, as the, as the fire burned low, as the night got darker and the sparks burst up into the sky from time to time, we would try to encourage one another by telling stories of heroes, people to inspire us, people that would make us want to be like them. The story of Gideon, as it's ordinarily used, would be exactly for that purpose. We can imagine sitting around the campfire and hearing about the great victory and, and longing to be like such a hero for God as well. And as I read through this portion of the account of Gideon, I want you to recognize that is, that is exactly what is going on, that there is a sense in which people are being inspired with the example of a man and that is so close to what they expect to happen. And it is so far from the gospel that is actually being portrayed. I want to read to you first, before we go a bit more in depth, the familiar portion of the life of Gideon. The portion that tells us about the heroes we would like to be. Before I tell you the rest of the story, which tells you of the gospel we so desperately need in the life 
of Gideon. You know the familiar portion. Judges chapter 7. I'll begin right in the first verses. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water, and the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his own home. Now, you know what happens. Gideon begins to arrange the men into various companies and give them instructions of how they were to prepare for the battle. And the battle begins to unfold in verse 16 of chapter 7. And he, that is Gideon, divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Then they blew the three hundred trumpets. The Lord said, Every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. As far as Bethshitta toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel-Mahola, by Tabith. And we'll stop there for now. Father, would you bless our understanding of your word? The exploits of men can inspire us, And encourage us. But if our strength is not in you. Then our efforts are in vain. So Father we who would be men for God. Teach us of the God who is for us. 
that we might be as you intend, not in our strength, but in yours. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the book, Mourning, M-O-U-R, Mourning into Dancing, Walter Wangren tells the story of a young woman named Gloria who has just lost the closest thing to a father she has ever known, an uncle. When she was a, a young girl, this uncle raising her at some point had to go off to war. And because she was just a little girl then, she got very frightened. And he, to settle her down, gave to her an Indian head nickel. And he said to her at that phase of her life, Gloria, if you will take this Indian head nickel and put it in your purse and never lose it, I will come back for it. He went off to war. She did not lose the nickel. And he came back. But now Gloria is much older, a single mom with children, still depending upon this father-like figure in her life. But he dies. And as the realization of his permanent absence settles upon her, so does a deep and profound depression. One night she dreams, and in this dream, the uncle reappears. And he says to her these words, Gloria, if you will find the Indian head nickel, I will come back again. She finds the nickel. He does not come back. And her depression deepens. She becomes useless as a mom, useless as an employee in her business, useless to her friends. It begins to touch everything in her life, not just affecting her inabilities, but her children losing hope and losing direction as well. One, one day her oldest son comes home from school and he punches out the screen on the back door for reasons he doesn't even know. And that sparks a visit from the pastor who comes and helps the boy replace the screen in the back door and then goes in to talk to Gloria. She's, she's like a delinquent in the principal's office. She just you know, kind of sits on the sofa with her head down. She does not respond. She does not react. He, he tries to, to speak to her. It, it's as though he's speaking to a wall. And finally to get through to her to somehow move beyond whatever depression and disgust she has about her own uselessness, he reaches out and touches her on the forearm and just says to her as, as a knowing pastor, Gloria, Gloria. I wish my words were an Indian head nickel that you would again put into the purse of your heart and never lose them. Gloria, the Lord still loves you. Jesus loves you. Gloria, he does listen to me. And she finally raises her head, wondering if it could be true. Could it be true that for one who is so useless and hopeless about herself, that God would still have love, even purpose for her life. 
If, if you're at one of those stages of life where you know, it, it, it's because the job has walked away or the family has walked away or your hopes for whatever the future would be are not what you want and you think, what, what am I doing? What, what, what is the use of continuing maybe with my family, with my spouse, with my job, with the Lord himself and the church? You know, what is the use? If you are just in the moment kind of overwhelmed with that sense of uselessness, that I will tell you the stories of, of Gloria and of Gideon are for you. After all, chapter 7 is not where we first learn about Gideon. He's got background, he's got history that we need to refer to before we would ever think of him as a hero to emulate. If you will just back up one chapter in your Bible, if you'll go to Judges chapter 6, we get our introduction to Gideon, and our introduction is really a revelation of the nerve of Gideon as we begin to understand how truly useless he is because of overwhelming fear that in his, in his heart. In verse 11 of chapter 6, we read these words. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a kind of tree, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Verse 12, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now you are supposed to get the irony of this. If you thresh wheat, you thresh it in an open area. Why do you thresh wheat in an open area? What do you hope will happen? The wind will do what? Blow away the chaff. Blow away the chaff. If, if you are treading out grapes in a wine press, you have an enclosed area because you don't want what to blow, you don't want what to blow in. You don't want chaff and dirt to blow in. But, but he is threshing wheat in a wine press. Why in the world would you thresh wheat in a wine press? Because he's doing what? He's hiding. He is afraid. The Midianites with their chariots have come into the lower valleys into Israel and the people of Israel have fled up into the mountains and they hide by day and by night. And now here is Gideon, mighty man of valor, who is, you know, he is threshing wheat in a wine press so nobody will see him. He is, he is afraid. For the angel to come to him and say, Greetings, O mighty man of valor, is a little bit like going to a kid who's flipping hamburgers at McDonald's and saying, Greetings, great chef. You know, the, the situation kind of belies the title. You know, this doesn't quite fit. And the unfit will become more and more obvious as we go. As this obvious fear of Gideon moves from just being obvious to actually being offensive. Verse 13, chapter 6. And Gideon said to him, that is the angel of the Lord, appearing for the Lord's represented himself, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? I get the questions, don't you? The Lord is with me? Oh, really? The Lord is with me. Why does my daughter have leukemia? Oh, yeah, I read the Sunday school literature. 
I know he helped the Israelites out of Egypt all those centuries ago. I know the stories. So why is it that I don't know if i got a job tomorrow? The Lord is with me? You mean that sovereign God that you say is in control of everything? God is with me? If God is with me, why is our church feeling crushed by the difficulties that we are facing, not just outward, but the fact we can't get along with each other. Is he in us, with us, this Emmanuel? God is with us? If he's with us, this must be his fault. And that's exactly what Gideon says at the end of verse 13. But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. It's his fault. If he's the God he says he is, and we are going through this difficulty and this hardship, then it must be his fault. And Gideon, the great man of valor, is not just afraid. He is blaming God for his difficulties. It gets even worse. Verse 14. And the Lord, represented by the angel now, turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you, Gideon. One plus God is a majority. You know, I'll go with you. You'll have my strength. You'll have my ability. And Gideon responds in verse 15 by saying, He said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Translation? Here am I, send somebody else. I'm, you know, I'm a little clan, and, and you know, I'm the youngest kid on the block. You know, I, I don't have the ability to do Lord, don't ask me. It's your fault, but don't ask me to help. It's so bad for Gideon as you begin to understand the history of this land, not just because his fear is obvious and not just because it's offensive, but because it won't go away. It just keeps reasserting itself over and over and over again. You want to see his fear show again? Look at verse 17. Gideon, speaking to the angel, says, He said to him, If now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you, that is the Lord, who are speaking with me. Now, I know it sounds relatively innocent, but you have to interpret the words even in the light of what Jesus said. What did Jesus say about people who ask for a sign? Don't tempt the Lord. It is a wicked wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. And now Gideon is doing just that. The Lord has said, I'm going to be with you, fulfill your responsibility, and get, well, okay, Lord, if (laughs) you give me a sign. Uh, The word of the Lord ought to be enough, right? (laughs) But he asked for a sign. Curiously enough, the angel of the Lord bends to this weakness. And in verse 21, we read this. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, because Gideon has brought a meal in honor to the angel, to the Lord. And after that, fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Got it? Here's the meal. It's sitting on a rock. And the angel of the Lord, to give the sign, touches the rock with the edge of his staff. And what happens to the rock? Fire comes up out of it, consumes the meal, and then the angel, poof, disappears. 
pretty good sign. <laughs> well, if all this happened, you now have the angel of the Lord coming to you, speaking to you, promising God's help, and giving you a sign. Surely Gideon now has his nerve bolstered. He's ready to go to battle for the Lord, right? <laughs> well, not, not quite. Actually, now it's time for the angel to test Gideon. A, a, a little sign that Gideon might be ready. So in verse 25 of chapter 6, we read of the test that is devised for Gideon. That night, the Lord said to him, that is Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Now, do you get the first test for Gideon? Now, remember, there are 135 thousand Midianites that he's to go against. And so the first test of whether Gideon is to be ready is the Lord says to him, I want you to go to your daddy's backyard <laughs> and do what? Tear down the idols that are there. Just, just, just go to your own family. How do you think Gideon responds to this test of his backbone? We read in verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too what? Because he was too afraid of his family. And the men of the town, to do it by day, he did it when? At night. I don't want anybody to see. Dad might get mad. The people might get upset. And so Gideon, going to his own family, takes ten men and does it at night so nobody will find out. But they do. The people of the town do find out it's Gideon. So you may remember as the account unfolds, they go storm the father's house. The father comes out to meet the men. Not Gideon. The dad goes out to meet the men who want Gideon's blood. And what does the father say to them? Uh, Baal can take care of himself. Don't hurt my boy. You go back home. And Gideon hides while his dad, the idolater, defends him. Question, are you ready for Gideon to lead your army? Is this the guy you want on your team? He's useless. He's just absolutely useless. For some reason, the Lord still chooses him. And the battle plan continues. So that by the time you get toward the end of chapter 6, you will find that Gideon does begin to gather the people of Israel, and they're actually getting ready to fight the Midianites. Just before the fight, something happens in verse 36. You may remember it. Then Gideon said to God, verse 36, chapter 6, Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, do, do, do you get the challenge of this? He says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. If you'll do as you've said, God. Oh. Verse 37. 
Behold, I'm laying a fleece of wood, wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. Do you get it? Lord, okay, I will go against the Midianites with the people that you have gathered. But first, Lord, I just want one more sign. Here it is. Lord, I'm going to put a fleece on the threshing floor. Now imagine, you know, this may be still... The, the same wine press threshing floor. But I'm, I'm going to put a fleece on this ground. And Lord, tonight, I, I want you to bring dew and I want you to make the fleece, what? Wet and the ground dry. And then, if you will do that miracle, I'll go. And what does God do? Precisely that. Precisely that. The next morning, the next morning, the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. Well, finally, Gideon has the sign that convinces him and he is ready to go to battle. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> well, not quite. What does he say? Um, 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 uh, God? Would you do it one more time? <laughs> but this time do what? Do the opposite. This time, make the ground wet and the fleece dry. You know, ever, sometimes I hear people say, you know, to find out the will of God, you should just put out a fleece the way Gideon... I think, did you ever actually read the account? You know, do, do you recognize the rebellion and the fear that is going into this testing of God that Gideon is doing? And yet, for all the amazingness of God's wonderful mercy, and in the face of Gideon's great fear, what does God do? The second night, he makes the fleece dry and the ground wet. Who's the real hero here? It is God. It is not Gideon. Now listen, I, I hope you know I've not, I've not been all that respectful for Gideon, but I want you to hear me turn the tables here a bit. The reason I have made so much of the fear of Gideon is because I so readily identify with it. Lord, you want me to do what? Lord, you're expecting what? Well, Lord, that'll hurt. That's risky. That's dangerous. I don't know if I can do that. You know, some, some years ago, in uh, my denomination, which is the Presbyterian Church in America, and I know you're going to be surprised by that, by this, but every now and then in the Presbyterian Church in America, we have conflict. It's probably unique to us. But as president of the seminary at that time of the National Seminary, there was a call that came into me one day, and as we were facing our general assembly and this major conflict was developing, a man called me, a pastor of a, of a large and influential church, and he said, Brian, he listen, uh, this thing's coming up, and, and listen, I, I think I know what your role ought to be. Because I don't want the seminary to get hurt. And, and I don't want you to get hurt. And I don't want your family to get hurt. Now it was said with a lot of smooth. But what was he really doing? He was threatening me. If you don't vote and act the way I think you should. I will hurt you. And I'll hurt your family. And I'll hurt the school. Now listen. At, at that 
particular time, the sun is shining, it's a bright day, I'm feeling pretty good, and what goes in my brain at this moment is, though I'm still courteous to him on the phone, is, you don't scare me. I face bigger fish than you, you know. And, and though I was polite, you know, hung up, not really bothered. You know, later that evening, I was actually getting on a plane, and you know where I was going? I was going to Israel. It's a long plane ride to Israel. And you can get really tired. And as I got more and more tired, and the trip got longer and longer, do you know what began to happen as I replayed that conversation in my mind? I got really, really scared. Could he hurt me? Could he hurt the school? Could he hurt my family? And the more I thought about it, the more worried and anxious and afraid I got. I knew he could really hurt me. I don't know what you're facing. I know that the temptation is for me as a proclaimer of the gospel to say, you know, if you're just faithful and if you just really have a a good faith attitude toward God, all your problems will go away. You know, I just don't know a Christian life in which that's true. I know that there are real things in life to fear. And for the moment, I'm not going to take away the things that you rightly fear. What I want you to see is, as fearful as Gideon was, God still used him. He was useless. I mean, he's just so useless in so many ways. And yet, God still, in mercy, beyond our expression, full understanding, took this this scaredy cat, this fearful man who, who was trying to run away from his responsibility for God despite the word and the repeated promise of God to be with him, Gideon just stays afraid and God stays with him either way. I mean, it's just, it's just a wonderful expression of the gracious nature of God. And, and yet, as you see it, it, it's still hard for us to grasp. We, we want to say, no, no, Show me how the problem will go away. And it just doesn't happen here. There's still 135,000 Midianites to face. And Gideon doesn't know what's going to happen. You know, I can, I can think of the importance of this that happened for me in learning some of the, the dynamics of God still using fearful people that happened as a consequence of my church when I was a child doing one of the dumbest things of any church I've ever known. This church of mine during my junior high years, asked Miss Killen, the single elderly church secretary, to take the junior high boys' vacation Bible school class. The junior high boys! Miss Killen, no kids, elderly. She's in charge of them. And what was worse, we're supposed to be memorizing the 91st Psalm. Now some of you, you know, vacation, you got a, you got a whole week to, to kind of memorize this. And, and we finally narrowed it down. We're just going to try to do one verse, you know. <laughs> you know, you know and, and even then, you know, you can just imagine these junior high boys taking advantage of this older woman. I mean, we were just terrible, you know. We were terrible. And I can remember in just absolute frustration at some point, Miss Killen saying to us, boys, boys, you have to listen to me. I mean, the, the words are, he will cover you with his feathers. Under his wings you will find refuge. There will be a point in time that you must know this, that you have to remember these words. She said, I had a friend 
who, who was going down the street one day and, and it was night and, and she was held up by a robber and the robber demanded her money and, and she didn't know what to do. She got so frightened that all she could remember was this one verse. Actually, she could just remember a phrase of the verse. Under his wings, under his wings. And so she began to say that to the robber. Under his wings, under his wings. Under. Well, the robber thought she was crazy and he got scared and ran away. Because she said, boys, even when you are afraid, God is with you. What happened to Gideon? What do you know? Even when he was afraid, God was with him. I know that I should say you shouldn't be afraid about the job situation or the health situation or the family situation. But listen... There are real bad things that can happen. And for the moment, I'm not just going to promise you some kind of magic wand out of the Bible that make it all disappear. What I want you to hear me say is, even when you are afraid, God is with you. That becomes all the more important when you not only understand the fear of Gideon, but how frail he was in the face of the dangers he faced. The frailty, of course, becomes obvious in chapter 7. In verse 2 of chapter 7, you remember this? The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, with what you know about Gideon's background, think of this next verse, verse 3. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. (laughs) Can you see Gideon right now? Really, Lord? Whoever is fearful can go home? Lord, (laughs) can I? Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. End of verse 3. Then 22,000 of the people returned. and Okay, start out with 32,000. Even that is not too big an army to go against 135,000. Now 22,000 have gotten afraid and gone home. You only got 10,000 left. And God says, what? There are still still too many. (laughs) Really, Lord? There's 135,000 over there. Only 10,000. Well, okay, The Lord says, but do this. Verse 4, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water. I'll test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, the one shall go with you, shall go with you. And the one of whom I say to you, this shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought them down to the water. And do you remember the test? Those who lap with their hands to their mouths like a dog. You've seen a dog's tongue, right? He reaches down and comes back up together. Those who lap with their hands to their mouths like a dog... Those are the guys I want to go into battle. And those who just kind of fall down into the water, you know, you know, let them go home. Now, you remember how many lap with their hands to their mouths like a dog? How many stayed? 300, right? So, so that means, you know, most of the 10,000 have gone home, 9,700. Now, I must tell you, do you remember where I told you I was going on that plane trip? Where was I going? To Israel. And do you know where one of our stays was at Israel? We went to this site. We went to the spring of Gideon, the spring of Herod. We went, we went there on the same trip. 
And it was so interesting for me on that trip to actually hear the Israeli guide explain her understanding of the Noble 300. Now, a lot of you are like me. You know, you're a little Sunday school boy. You were trained about the Noble 300, right? Now, when they're, when they're down, right, when they're down on their knees and they're lapping with their hands to their mouths, you know, like a dog lapping with his tongue, what are they doing with their eyes, these Noble 300? What are they doing? They're looking up. These are the vigilant ones. These are the guys who are staying alert. They are watching for the enemy. These are the good guys, these Noble 300. You know what the Israeli guide said? She asked a question. Now, now she said, which are the guys that you want to go into battle with you? The ones who have been training so hard, working so hard, carrying their spears, polishing their shields, sharpening their arrows, that they are just totally fatigued. So when they come to water, they are so parched, they just fall on their faces in the water. Or do you want the guys who've been dogging it every day, that now when they come to the water, they just don't need much water. They're just kind of laughing at the mouths. The point that she was trying to make was that the 300 were the guys in the black hats, not the ones in the white hats. You know, these are the bad guys. These are the not noble ones. Now, let me tell you something. I don't think you can prove it that way. (laughs) I don't think you can prove it either. You know what I think you can definitely prove? You don't take 300 against 135,000 and expect to win. You know, this is a frail little group. These are not the people who should be on the winning side. They're not only led by a scaredy cat, they themselves are totally incapable by what they have, their abilities, their strengths, their gifts, to do what God is requiring them to do. They can't do it. They're too frail. I think of it, some of you may remember that, that account of Pilgrim's Progress where... The, the pilgrim, Christian, actually gets to the celestial city. That's the representation of heaven. And as he gets the tour of the celestial city, at one point he is actually led to the storehouse of the munitions of God, God's weapons house. What do you think would be inside? As, as Christian looks inside the storehouse of the munitions of God, what do you think is in there? Trumpets and broken pitchers. The signs of human weakness in which God shows himself strong. I know God calls us to do things that we think are beyond us. To stand up to a boss. To be gentle with a spouse when everything in us wants just to rage when we are being called to take care of a child who has turned his back on us and we wonder where we will get the funds, much less the patience. And God is calling us to ministries and mission greater than our ability to withstand. And we wonder how can we do it. And he is reminding us that in our weakness, he shows himself strong. This is beyond you. It is beyond your ability. Trust him. Because he will take people who are afraid of the consequences and people who are too frail to accomplish the task and say, if you will confess that to me, I will still use you as I know best in my time and my way. Trust the God who uses the frail and the fearful because he's the one who uses useless people to show himself and the glory of his own name to the whole world. Some years ago when Zhang Zemin was the premier of China, 
there was a delegation from our school that went with some others and had an opportunity to have audience with the premier of China. And this was a, a time in the early 90s at which there was great persecution that was coming upon Christians in China. And yet here was this group of Christians who had time to be with the premier of China. And as the conversation progressed, and some of you know how this works, you have to be so careful about the politics and about what you can and don't say. And, and so people begin just to express that, that Christians were truly those who desired peace in the society and they, they wanted people to be moral and they wanted the great ideal of the Chinese system. They wanted order in society that comes from following Christ. And the premier listened to that kind of approach, said at some point, great confession, he said, that when he was a child, the nurse who raised him and cared for him was a Christian. And the opportunity was given right then to give him a gospel of John with his promise that he, if he could, would read it. Now, I can't tell you that there'd be any definite thing that happened, but some of you know what's happened to Christians in China since the early 90s as the multiplication factor of Christians has grown from at that point probably 40 to 60 million to now closer to 100 million Christians in China. There are more seminaries in China than there are in the United States. Do you know that? Chinese Christians may already outnumber North American Christians. There has been this tremendous mushrooming of the gospel in house churches, in hidden places, in ways that people... I was there in January under an assumed name in one part of the country because you simply can't be open about your faith. And yet, the gospel is multiple. What if, what if a generation ago there was a Christian nurse in a rich household caring for a little child in the name of Jesus... And her testimony, weak and frail and unseen by the rest of the world, is triggering one of the most expansive outbursts of Christianity in the history of the world. And she has no concept that was going on, no expectation that it would be happening. And yet God was saying, in the weak I am made strong. Those who trust in me, though you think you are useless, my word does not return to me void. I will use those who trust in me, though they be afraid, and their own efforts to their eyes be frail. I know something in you not only believes that, but wants to believe it. That, that, that God can use people who are afraid and people who are free, that are frail and, and don't seem to be useful at all. But, but, you know, sometimes we back away from these biblical truths thinking they don't apply to us because we might acknowledge the fear. We might even acknowledge the frailty. But we say, is this can't apply to me because I am too fallible. You can't make these promises to me that God will use somebody who is useless to him in all the failings of my life because what my failings indicate are sin. I know that. God, God is not obligated to help somebody like me. My weakness, my faults, my frailties are too obvious to my own eyes. I don't expect God to use me. If you're going to count yourself out of the promises and blessings of God because you think you simply don't qualify for them, because of the, the lack of spirituality in you, you desperately need the rest of the story of Gideon. I read to you the hero chapter, that's seven you shouldn't ever finish until you've gone to chapter 8. Chapter 8 tells us aspects of Gideon's life 
that don't usually make the Sunday school literature. Verse 22 of chapter 8. You there? Verse 22, chapter 8 of Judges. Verse 22, chapter 8 of Judges. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Well, isn't that noble? Don't make me the king. Only the Lord should be your king. Now, that, that really is good theology and good governance. The problem is, if you just let your eyes roll down the page to verse 31, something very interesting is said about Gideon. Verse 31 of chapter 8, And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he, that is Gideon, called his name Abimelech. Now, there's a few people in the room who still have a little Hebrew from their seminary days, and I will not call upon them. You're okay. You don't have to be afraid. <laughs> but let me remind you what Abimelech means. Abimelech means my father is the king. What did Gideon name his son? My father is the king. All right, now listen. The people come to Gideon and said, Gideon, be our king. You rule over us. Oh, no, 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 no. Only the Lord should be your king. By the way, have you met my son? His name is, my father is the king. <laughs> Something is amiss, more so than we have the daring even to imagine. Look what happens. Verse 24, Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites, that is, those who had been defeated. And the people answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. And some of your Bibles even show you in the footnotes that's 43 pounds of gold. That is a lot of gold. Verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. Now, an ephod is like a ceremonial vest or breastplate, okay? Middle of verse 27. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. If I put on the ephod... The Spirit of the Lord will come upon me and I can tell you your future as long as you honor me. Oh no, don't make me your ruler. But if you expect to know your future, you come to me when I put on the ephod. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family because it was an idol that made him the de facto king of Israel. Now you be God for just a moment. You have taken this afraid, frail, little skinny, slithering 
sneaky Gideon. And you have given him this great victory with 300 men over 135,000 Midianites. And Gideon takes the very spoil from the victory that God has given him and he takes the spoil and turns it into an idol for his own promotion. And it not only hurts him and the nation, but generations of his own family afterwards. If you were God, what would you do to Gideon? What you don't have to guess, we can see. Verse 28 of chapter 8. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Well, Gideon just gets a lot of peace. No more troubles. Verse 32. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now, I know you think there's going to be more of this story. I mean, wait, it can't end there. I mean, you know, there's got to be consequence. You know, something's got to happen to Gideon. No, he's dead now. At a good old age. In a land that's had peace and plenty for 40 years. Well, that's not exactly the biblical math we're used to drawing. I mean, I thought if you went against God, he was supposed to go against you. I I, I thought if you messed up, there were going to be consequences to pay here. Now, you need to hear me say carefully. Gideon's family suffers because of his unfaithfulness. But for Gideon himself, There is amazing blessing. He sins against God terribly. Gets the great victory that he does not deserve. Uses it for his own advantage. And simply experiences peace and prosperity the rest of his life. How do you make sense of that? What you make sense of is God is going to underdo the math of our spirituality every time. He is showing us a gospel in Old Testament clothes beyond our imagining. Where God is saying, though you are faithless, I will abide what? Faithful. Faithful. Though you are undeserving, yet I will provide mercy. Though you are, are totally in rebellion against me, you have to remember that was when we were yet his enemies, what did Christ do? Died for us. It, it, it's not the math of our minds. God is simply saying, I will do whatever is necessary to claim the hearts of my people. Yes, sometimes there is discipline. No denying that. Other times there is overwhelming blessing to show how great is His grace toward those who will even turn to Him at all. So that we recognize it's, it's not just the people who have measured up, but the people who can never measure up, who are totally useless. That God still says, I have hope for you. You don't think there's a reason for hope? You look at Gideon. He will destroy every math that we want to bring to the gospel and say, no, God will show his mercy as he knows his best to claim the hearts of his people. For the gen- this is, Gideon's going to make it to the hall of faith, right? The hall of fame of faith in the book of Hebrews. He's going to make it. And you read it. Why? Because he was a man of faith, not in Gideon ultimately, but in a God who was so much greater than Gideon. And, and that reality is ultimately what gives us hope when we know we are afraid and we are frail 
And we are fallible so much so we don't have any right to stand before God. And he says, I know that. That's why I sent Jesus. Because, because you couldn't make it right. You're more like Gideon than you know. And when, and when you know that, that it's, it's the useless to which God is saying, I can still use you. We have hope again. Maybe I can only tell you, if I bring it closer to home, that is even comfortable, even for me. About four years ago, in a holding cell in Mississippi, there was a middle-aged man who has the mind of an eight-year-old who was huddled in a corner and trembling. He'd been arrested for just cause, but he was put in this holding cell with other men, more mature, more understanding, more hardened than he was. And if you can imagine having the mind of an eight-year-old in a holding cell with a bunch of other men, you would know why he was trembling, trying to hide in a corner and just shaking in fear. And another man in the cell, for reasons we're not entirely sure, probably there on drug charges, saw the middle-aged man with an eight-year-old mind trembling and went to him and said, If you will trust Jesus, he will be with you, whatever you have to face. Now think of that. Here's a man probably on drug charges who's abandoned every bit of Sunday school teaching he's ever heard. (laughs) Probably not associated with a church that wants to recognize him at all. And yet he's becoming an instrument of the gospel to walk across a holding cell in which he himself has been arrested to go to another man who's, who's trembling in a corner with an eight-year-old mind and say, if you will trust Jesus, he will be with you with whatever you have to face. The reason I know that is true is the middle-aged man with the eight-year-old mind is my brother. And I have witnessed to him, as has the rest of my family, all of my adult and much of my childhood life to see no results. And yet, here this seminary president, having no impact, is superseded by a a man probably on drug charges in a holding cell who becomes the instrument of God to reach with the gospel to my brother that's in the cell. And I will tell you, I... I have saved the letter. I have read it to audiences across this country to say my brother wrote, this brine is now what I believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I did not even know my brother could write. All all of his adult life he has spoken to me and the rest of his family in single syllables and grunts. And he not only wrote the John 3.16, he began to write to me and to his other siblings the words that he was learning from Scripture courses being taught in prison. And, and, And the Lord will have my brother not in hell, but in heaven, in his right mind, saved eternally because a man in a holding cell because an instrument of the gospel, though he was useless, but used by God to reach my brother for eternity. Just, just three years ago, my brother, now newly converted, wrote, and I must tell you, you have to kind of interpret the spelling at times, and, but he wrote, 
Brian, I'm, I'm going to pray for mom and dad to get back together. My parents have been separated for over 15 years. And I'm a seminary president, and when my brother, this new convert, writes, I'm going to pray for mom and dad to get back together, I think, oh, no, I know that's not going to work. And that year, my oldest daughter got married. And my, my mother called me one day, and she said, I'm coming to the wedding, okay? I'm coming with your father, okay? We're staying in the hotel or the you know, wedding parties, okay? We're staying in the same room. What? She said, we're still married. Remember, it's not a scandal, because they'd never gotten divorced. And finally, I kind of got up off the floor and said, Mom, are things better between you and Dad? And she said, Because of your brother's troubles, your father and I have learned to lean on each other again. I visit my brother in prison these days, and when I do, I go with my parents. And if you were to go with me, you would see two older people in their early 80s walking through barbed wire, holding hands in absolutely the best years of their lives. Because a a middle-aged man with an eight-year-old mind began to pray for them. And that little child led me and led them into the beauty and the glory of the gospel truth that I would proclaim to the world. Listen, you must hear me. The gospel is real. It changes people. Not because we're better, not because we're deserving, not because we've got it all together, but when we are afraid... God is still with us. And when we are too frail to accomplish anything, he says, you turn to me and I will be with you. And when we say, but God, I messed up too bad, he says, but I sent Jesus for you. And when you know that, you have hope again. And I pray that you would have hope again, whatever you're facing, that you would know that God can use useless people like Gideon, like me, like my brother, like you. God can do that because he's the God of Gideon who sent Jesus for me, for you, for this world. Father, work the gospel into us again. We have so much trouble believing it's, it could be as good as it actually is, that it could be as life-changing as you actually make it, that the Spirit could be as powerful as he actually is in the heart of those who trust you. And where our trust has waned and where our fear is great, Father, work again this night, we pray, to bring into our hearts the realities of the God who says, though you are weak, I will make you strong. I am the one who takes broken vessels and blows the glory of the gospel through them. Father, though broken, we turn to you. That we may have trumpeted ourselves in the past, help us now to trumpet you. May the glory of the grace of the Lord Jesus be our hope and strength again, we pray. In Jesus' name.
Amen.